The CNN released tape of Trump talking about classified documents complicates his case. At the Justice Department, you have whistleblowers versus A.G. Merrick Garland. The Supreme Court, that would be the United States Supreme Court, weighs in on the role of state courts with regard to state election laws. And we will hear from Palmetto Family Interim President Mitch Prosser concerning oral arguments on the heartbeat bill presented yesterday at the South Carolina Supreme Court. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Welcome in, everybody. It is a Wednesday edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Bing. We're glad to have you listening. And like we said, coming up here in about uh, 13 minutes or so, 14, I guess, we're going to have interim president Mitch Prosser from Palmetto Family in South Carolina talking about yesterday's oral arguments at the Supreme Court about the heartbeat bill. And uh, a lot of observers in the court yesterday um, would love to have been down there, but there's just no way that I could get to Columbia, uh, particularly after doing the show live, um, that I could get there in time to get in the building because seats were at a premium. As you can imagine, some folks didn't get in that wanted to get in to hear the arguments. But Mitch is going to give us a full report here in a few minutes, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. Um, we also just have a lot of consequential news going on this morning. So we're going to be talking about, as I said in the intro, uh, the release of President Trump talking about classified documents. Uh, we're going to be talking. Okay, I'm being told there's no sound, and uh, I have I have no idea why. Um, I'm getting my meters are working everywhere over here. I'm hearing sound in my headphones, and we're streaming, and everything is plugged in the way that it's supposed to be, so I have no idea. If there's no sound coming out online, um, let's see, I just unplugged everything, so we might have lost the video for a second. This is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when you don't have a producer. Um, it causes you to have to become the producer in the middle of doing a show and try to troubleshoot a little bit. So I'm just going to have to keep going because I, according to everything that I see here, we have, we should have sound going out and I can't find anything that would suggest that there's, there's something wrong on this end. So if you're not able to hear on Facebook and on uh, YouTube, what I would suggest is that you'll have to download the program in a little while. Uh, it should be available probably before 10 o'clock for you to download the podcast and you can listen to the program. Of course, if you're not hearing me, I'm, I'm not doing myself any good, am I, telling you that. All right, for those of you who can hear and for podcasters, um, people who are listening to the podcast, let me just mention that um, I am not going to do the show on Monday or Tuesday of next week. Uh, next week, Monday and Tuesday is July. Th well, I, I can't. 
there's nothing I can do. I, my wife just came back in here again and said there's there's no sound, but hopefully it's recording so that um, the podcast will work. And again, folks, I apologize for you having to hear all this stuff, but this is the way it works when you're doing a live show that is also going to be a podcast. Um, so as I said, I'm not going to be doing the show on Monday and Tuesday next week, July 3rd or 4th. And um, I'm just going to take those two days off for the July 4th holiday. But the program will be back Wednesday through Friday next week. And, of course, I'm going to do the show tomorrow and Friday of this week. So just giving you a little bit of a heads up about next week's schedule. And um, some of you may notice, by the way, that I'm wearing my Braves hat today. Um, that's uh, in, in honor of the fact that the Atlanta Braves have got to be the, the hottest team in baseball right now. They beat the Minnesota Twins again last night. And that means that they're going to win this series. I mean, to win a series over the Central Division leading Reds in the National League, and now to win or clinch a series over the Central leading um, Division team in the American League, the Minnesota Twins, um, the, the Braves are having a pretty good run. Uh, they've taken over the lead by a ton in the number of home runs, and, and that's really how they're prospering right now they're manufacturing some runs they're really fast on the base pads uh, Acuna is stealing you know every base in the book and uh, but you you have they're they're basically making all their their runs and their offensive powers coming off their home run balls the long balls so um, congratulations to the Braves love the Braves I was uh, sitting out on the deck last night listening to them and then uh, watched a little bit of the game. In fact, I, I actually enjoy listening to baseball uh, because when I was growing up, listening to baseball is what I did with my dad more than watching it on TV. I mean, you you got to remember wh when I was a kid, there were three networks, and you you could get you know we got maybe four stations with a rotor antenna on top of the house where you could actually change the direction of the antenna to pick out uh, pick up some stations from other places. So in any event, um, it was, you know, listening to baseball, uh, particularly most of those games were in the evening, and listening to baseball was a great thing that I remember about my dad. So I, I, I kind of have that thing where I like to just, just sit out on the deck, and especially right when the sun's going down, really nice part of the day for me, and listen to baseball. Um, all right, like I said, Mitch Prosser is going to be calling in here in a few minutes. Before he does, I want to I want to talk just briefly about this Supreme Court decision that came down yesterday on redistricting. Um, that we've already we already know that earlier the Supreme Court has ruled some of the maps that uh, were drawn by states to be unconstitutional because they the way the maps were drawn it seemed to be obvious that uh, to at least to the court that not enough consideration was being given to minority voters in the way that these districts were being drawn. Well, yesterday in the second ruling, um, the Supreme Court, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, handed down um, a ruling that affirmed that state courts have the power to determine whether political district maps and voting rules violate state law rejecting a novel legal theory from North Carolina Republicans that state legislatures aren't bound by state courts or constitutions. Now, at first glance, I mean, when you look at this, you've got a lot of conservatives are howling about this, and a lot of progressives are celebrating the decision. 
But in fact, if you if you think about it, a lot of the of the shenanigans, shall we say, that went on and on the state level with state courts upholding laws that were not good um, for Republicans because and and some of those and, and a lot of state in a lot of states Republicans would have done themselves a favor if they had actually gone to court because in South Carolina for example um, we actually won the cases where progressives were trying to change election laws because of COVID that would have benefited primarily Democrats so it, this this thing this gate swings both ways uh, this ruling by the Supreme Court prevents. I think um, the, the the state courts from abuses in either direction, uh, either supporting in states that are progressive, supporting um, because we do have to remember that there are a lot of progressive states where the the state supreme courts are uh, you know will back up laws that are not good that are brought by the legislatures that, that are being written in favor of Democrats. But in the same case, you have state Supreme Courts that are more conservative that are willing to back up laws and districts that are written by Republican legislatures. So to me, this is a re-emphasis of states' rights. I mean, it is saying that the federal courts should not have the ability that whereas the federal courts still have a role that the state courts are, you know, absolutely um, have a role in, in, in having a say about what the laws are state by state. And, and to me, that just makes sense. Uh, the two rulings by conservative-leaning Supreme Court were a surprise to many legal analysts, according to the Wall Street Journal. The Supreme Court, has, in prior decisions, had ruled that federal courts have no powers to adjust partisan gerrymanders and pared back provisions of the Voting Rights Act, all but ending the Justice Department's ability under the law to review election changes that might harm minority voters in a set of mostly Southern states. Together, this month's rulings affirm the power of two of the most important tools that voting rights advocates have used to unwind gerrymandered House maps, lawsuits citing state constitutions, which in many states have explicit language intended to block political maps that favor a single party and remaining provisions of the Voting Rights Act, that law has forced states in many cases to redraw maps when black or other minority voters are packed into a single district or, it, or else spread thinly across several districts, diminishing their power to elect the candidate of their choice. Most states drew up new House maps in 2021-2022 using results from the 2020 census to rebalance districts so that they have roughly equal numbers of residents, but the redistricting process continues in many states. So to me, I, I, I mean, I get it, but I'm hearing analysis from people who watch these things and who observe how state courts rule that this is not necessarily just a big win for progressives, even though they're out celebrating. Because in many cases, state Supreme Courts and state courts rule in favor where you have justices on those courts who are more, more conservative, that they actually rule in favor of laws that are passed by Republican legislatures in those courts. 
because it all comes down to interpretation of state law. I mean, just like we're going to be uh, talking about here in just a minute, I mean, we had our heartbeat bill in South Carolina, um, you know, uh, turned down because we the, the heartbeat bill um, it, uh, violated, according to a majority of the justice, three of the five, the heartbeat bill violated the court's um, the, the, a woman's right to privacy. And of course, a progressive court, it turned out, at the, in this case, we, we had a progressive court here in South Carolina, actually looked at the South Carolina Constitution and made that ruling. Well, now we believe, or at least we hope, that the court with a new conservative, more conservative member, we hope, um, is going to reverse that and by a three to two decision then it will the heartbeat bill will be upheld. So again, the makeup of the court in these cases matters. All right, we're going to jump over and talk to Mitch Prosser. Mitch is the interim president. At hey, Dr. Beam, Fair. how are you, sir? Hello, sir. How are you doing? It's good to have you on the show. Hey, before yeah. we jump jump any for, further I forward, um, I know. Okay, I know. There's, no, Very there's good. no sound, and there's nothing I can do about it because everything oh, that's wild. everything that I'm sitting here looking at tells me that everything is working fine. So it's got to be something between the stuff that I've got here in front of me and where it's going. So what I'm doing right now, technology. just just for people that are going to just so, of course, I'm not talking to anybody, but me and you at the moment. So I don't know why I'm even, <laughs> yes, I'm even saying this, but the podcast uh, can be uploaded. I mean, I know I'm recording Excellent. the podcast. So it'll yes, be sir. hopefully I'm going to, you know, hopefully people will go up and, and look for it, even though they can't hear yes, it this sir. morning. All right, Mitch, um, you serve as interim president of Palmetto Family, and you were in the courtroom yesterday for the oral argument. So just give us a report. Let, let me just let you go here to talk about what your impressions are of how the uh, arguments went. Absolutely. And thank you, Dr. Beam. I, I think it's important for people to understand um, what that courtroom is what it looks like it's it's a very um uh very austere environment it is highly formal it, it generally follows the uh classical rules of debate where each side gets a limited amount of time they can share or split that time however they want and then um the defense side in this case the state gets a rebuttal after the the plaintiff uh voices their um, their side or their oral argument. What is different is that the justices have the ability and freedom to interrupt and um, generally ask questions, but also make statements at will. Um, and so yesterday, the state began its argumentation and its oral uh, defense, and uh, almost immediately, Chief Justice Beatty stepped in uh, along with Justice Few um, and began um, uh, a monologue of sorts. There was some dialogue, um, but a monologue of sorts uh, in questioning why we were in the courtroom, what was the, what was the point. Um, this had already been decided. Of course, some of that's political showmanship, um, but th that was kind of the tone and tenor right out of the gate. Um, it was it was interesting to note that at times it appeared as if the Planned Parenthood representative and counsel uh, went unimpeded uh, by some of the same members of the court. But uh, there were several questions for her as well. 
Um, it's also worth noting that, and, and, and our director of communications and I uh, were watching closely body language, um, size, grimaces, uh, smiles. Uh, there were several light moments yesterday, generally surrounding Justice Few's uh, uh, opinion in, the, in what many are calling Planned Parenthood 1. Um, his lines were quoted back to him several times, and he consulted his quote-unquote attorney, Chief Justice Beatty, a couple of times. Uh, so uh, there were some light moments as well. Uh, but, but overall, the oral arguments went as most people expected. The state pled their case why the General Assembly's uh, law that the governor signed is constitutional and of course, Planned Parenthood made their case why it is not. I would argue, and, and this is purely subjective and editorial in nature, I would argue that Planned Parenthood did not meet the burden of proof behest upon them in arguing that the, the law itself, the heartbeat law, is unconstitutional on any grounds that would be um, previously noted in Planned Parenthood 1, and and honestly, when they when they spoke about a, the ban, quote unquote ban, they. Hello, Mitch. Mitch. Hey, I'm with yeah. you. Okay. Yeah, it, I'm getting ban. everything I'm saying. I'm getting everything repeated back to me. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Mitch. Um, That's okay. Yeah, go ahead if you can. Um, yes, sir. So I, I think what uh, the when they were sp speaking of the ban, they talked about a six-week ban, that and that was pointed out by Justice um, uh, James and I believe Justice Kittredge that the word six weeks never occurs anywhere within the law, and so that's a colloquialism and a misnomer all at the same time. All right. Well, let me ask you about that. Is your audio any better by the by the way now? We're still change. we're still on a loop. On a loop. But okay. that's okay. I'm listening to you, not myself. Okay. Um, well, when when you um, think about the six weeks language, the fact that it's not in the bill, then obviously they're referring to the fact that it it talks about when the heartbeat is detected. So are those two things not interchangeable or considered to be interchangeable by the court? Well, that's, fasc that's fascinating that you bring that up because Justice Kittredge and Justice Few both talked about how this law could expand freedom, options, and choice for couples uh, who are earnestly de deliberating whether or not to have an abortion. Um, I, I think that the cardiac event, as the state mentioned, could be detected as early as four weeks, but the general consensus is that it's around six weeks, but may not be detected until as late as eight or nine weeks. So six weeks seems to be the stake or anchor in the ground, but it may not be at six weeks every single time. Okay. Well, um, good news is, by the way, that we now have audio. Um, so Excellent. It's, it, it, people who are, if I don't know if they've gone, gone and found something else to do, um, and, and gave up on trying to listen to the show live, but, but if you're, but if they're, if, if you're listening now, spread the word that, uh, if you would, that we've got audio now. Okay. Um, now who made the arguments for the state was, was that the attorney general? Did Alan Wilson do that or did somebody else make the argument? 
So the states split their time between the solicitor general, uh, the the deputy solicitor general, yeah, and the governor's council as well. Okay. So they they both made the case, and they I think they did a a really good job. Um, were there things that they could have made clearer in their argumentation? Yes, but I think they did a good job of defending the state's argument and and that vested interest by the state. I was talking to some other folks about this that were has have read about it or were down there uh, actually yesterday, and I, I said, okay, just give me a number, give me a number, and I heard three, two, and four, one. Uh, no one seemed to think that this thing was going to go the other way. Now that's a little bit surprising to me because you've got stare decisis on the table, uh, which people, you know, a lot of people were concerned about when the heartbeat bill was being debated. One of the arguments that you heard was that if we send this back to the South Carolina Supreme Court, they're going to look at this through the eyes of stare decisis, and it's they're going to say we've already ruled on this, which is the argument that Beatty was making at the beginning, it sounds like, at the opening of the oral arguments. But from what you're saying, the rest of the justices didn't really buy into that argument, so maybe stare decisis is not going to be that big of a deal and that we are going to see a positive ruling by the court. In fact, Dr. Beam, Justice Kittredge dismantled any idea of stare decisis playing a factor in this because he said even if stare decisis were a factor here, that cannot limit the court's ability to go back and review cases, and it cannot also limit the General Assembly's ability to make law. Yeah. He, he cited Plessy versus Ferguson. He cited Dred Scott. He cited the Dobbs case in its overturning of Roe, even though it was nearly 50 years later, how all of those cases involved stare decisis and the uh, striking of stare decisis. You know, if we're going to talk numbers, you know, the makeup of the court being different than it was a year ago, I think plays a factor. Right now, I would argue that it's a 3-2 uh yeah. Three-two decision in favor of the state. It could be four to one, but that would in, in that would involve Justice Few making a decision outside of what he alluded to yesterday and what he's been known to do historically in the past. Now, other others have said that Justice Few, which he and by the way, this would be characteristic of his style. Was appeared to be on both sides of the issue a couple of times. Yes. Uh, so it, it may be difficult, and I think that's what you're expressing here, is it could be difficult to determine which way particularly that he's going to go. But let me ask you this. You know, when we were in Columbia and we were working on this, uh, when the Senate was debating this, there was a moment, and we'll just leave people and personalities out of it for the time sure. being, but there was a moment when an argument was made from the floor that I looked at, it, it was either you or Amy or somebody, and said, you know, this sounds uh, a little strange. What, <laughs> what, where is this argument? Why are we making this argument right now? And the answer was that this particular senator was speaking directly to Justice Few, that things were yes. being said on the floor that they believed that the justices may review and the arguments were being made to set up the success of this bill before the Supreme Court. Do you remember that? I do. I do. And I remember that senator. I remember the argumentation. You know, that there is something to, to consider there. 
um, that's public record. Yeah. And I think that um, that senator being um, an attorney could could be veiling uh, language. You know, you and I are are more in the theological bent. That's right. And so sometimes you and I may talk in theological terms and veil what we're saying. You know, for for the sake of fun or what whatever reason. Right. I, I think when a legislator speaks in certain terms, yes, I, I think that argumentation can be veiled in a way that it, it at least sends a signal to the the justice, uh, in this case, Justice Few, saying, listen, your, your uh, objections last time are being clearly answered right here and right now, right. almost as if we're putting a bookmark in an audio book. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about with with theological language. I mean, I can talk about you know the, <laughs> yeah. the dispensational ramifications of the eschaton, and and I can say that, sure. and just you know, and people go, "Wow, he must have been to seminary." Yeah. And sometimes you have lawyers do the same thing with uh, lawyer That's language. Right. Well, uh, it sounds like overall uh, it was a good day. It's very dangerous ground. Uh, for us to make any prediction based on oral arguments. Yeah. I think our best hope for this bill being upheld by the Supreme Court are two things. One, it doesn't sound like either James or Kittredge have changed their mind from the first go-round. And number two, it sounded to me like Justice Hill was um, it, at least certainly not um, opposed to upholding this bill. So if, if those three, I mean, that's, I mean, it takes three out of five. If those three hold, then we can possibly see this thing go into law, which we desperately need in South Carolina since we're having you abortions bet. at a rate of over 1,000 a month. I know you've got to go to another event. Let me ask you a final question. Is there any indication of when we're going to get a decision? It's a good question. I think you're accurate in your analysis. I think that uh, we could see uh, my guess, and this is purely speculation. My guess would be uh, early mid-August. Let's call it mid-August. That yeah. gives them about two months. Some have already uh, speculated that they've already made their decision. They're just going to wait. Um, but you know, to, to answer your previous question or, and, and your comment. We felt really good about this decision last time around as well. That's and I'm true. not trying to set us up for failure or no, anything like that. That's a great but point. What I will, yeah. But what I will say is this. Men and women of courage, conviction, and faith have to step up and continue to pray on this issue. Yes. Well, and we have to continue. I, I've, I can't say this enough, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it again. Some people are going to go, we heard you. We heard you the hundredth time. <laughs> But, I, but I'm just telling you, um, the church and has, the body of Christ, let me put it that way, the church, but it's the, and that is the church, has got to be clear, and it's got to clear its throat and speak without ambiguity and boldly into this issue, explaining why life is precious, how we're created in God's image, and why that matters in this particular debate. Because you we believe it. We still don't have a, a majority of people in South Carolina, I don't think, that would support a total ban on abortion. Um, and it's because right. they, they've listened to the culture for so long that they, they've got, they need to step back and listen to the truth, which 
truth and politics and culture is what we're about here. Anyway, Mitch, you're doing a great job leading Palmetto family. Thank you for being there yesterday. God bless you. Appreciate you being on the program this morning. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Dr. B. Yes, sir. All right. Um, Mitch Prosser, appreciate his call. I I do think that that we're going to be okay with this. I mean, I... I hesitate to say that uh, because, again, a lot of people thought that last time. But I, I need to confess, I, I was not one of them. I was not very confident about what the South Carolina Supreme Court was going to do with the previous heartbeat bill. And, again, it goes to the makeup of the court. I, I knew, or at least I felt like, that Kay Hearn would be her judicial philosophy, would lead her down the path which the court went with this idea of a right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution. And that came from the oral arguments. Because if you remember, just to take you back in time a little bit about the previous debate, when the Supreme Court met, there was all this talk before about the heartbeat bill, the original heartbeat bill, before the Supreme Court uh, met to consider the oral, oral arguments. There was all this talk about the language in the bill and the problem with the language. And we've got to fix the language uh, because the the court is going to be concerned about uh, certain parts of the language when they actually issued their ruling upholding the injunction before the oral arguments. Speculation was that language in the bill would have to be fixed, that the court was sending a signal to the legislature to fix some of the language. Well, when we got to oral arguments, none of that was relevant. The oral arguments the first time around all centered around a woman's right to privacy. Was that really in the South Carolina Constitution? Did Article 1, Section 10 explicitly state that abortion, that the state could not restrict abortion because it violated a woman's right to privacy? And that's exactly three to two how the court ruled with Justice Hearn writing the majority opinion. And so my my concerns about the last um, Supreme Court's look at this bill were centered around my doubts about there being enough people on the court that would reject the woman's right to privacy argument, especially since the South Carolina Constitution's language in Article 1, Section 10 is actually stronger when it relates to right to privacy than the United States Constitution. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, you just undermined your own argument. No, not really, because Article 1, Section 10, there's nothing about that language that suggests that it had anything to do with a baby in the womb. None. It was, if, if you understand the context of that section of the state constitution, if you understand that in 1971, when this was added, that there were grave concerns over the FBI's, um, you know, what, what was considered to be aggressive and abuse of wiretaps and warrantless searches. And that's what people in South Carolina were concerned about. They were trying to protect their personal property and, and, and to, against illegal siege, uh, search and seizure. So um, I, I, that's why I, I never, it, it never entered my mind that that right to privacy was going to be extended to a woman, uh, a woman who was pregnant and the baby in the womb. But that's exactly what the court did. There's nothing to indicate now to me from what I've heard about the arguments yesterday that that was even really very much on the table 
um, in this discussion, which leads me to believe, again, that the most likely outcome, and again, this is pure speculation, but the most likely outcome is going to be a 3-2 decision to uphold the heartbeat bill. All right, um, let me wrap up our discussion that we were having before Mitch called in uh, about the new, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling as it relates to uh, the court's role in interpreting election laws according to state constitutions. Um, Aaron Convey said, he said, I think it's fair to call it a wash at this point. Now, he's an analysis, he's an, an analyst with the nonpartisan newsletter Inside Elections. And so, okay, that's what I would say about the Supreme Court's decision. It's a wash in the sense that it doesn't really aid progressives and it doesn't necessarily or really aid conservatives unless you're a conservative that believes in the autonomy of the states. This is an upholding of a state court's role in election laws and a state court's role in interpreting state law and the constitution of the individual states. And I think that's important. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with that because they want the the federal government to step in in cases where they believe that the state courts are liberal. But but here's my question about that. I mean, if we are conservative states' rights advocates and we believe in the autonomy of states apart from the federal government, it's kind of hard to make that argument, and I believe that's what a big part of what conservatism stands for. I can tell you it's a big part of my conservatism. Um, if, if that's what we are going to advocate for, it's going to be kind of hard to turn around and say, well, um, really, you know, we, we believe in federal intervention when it suits our side of the aisle, but we don't, you know, we don't want federal intervention if it goes against something that we think needs to happen. Uh, that's not a constitutional viewpoint. I mean, I think you either uphold states' rights, the legal rights of states to have the, the say-so over their own constitutions, or you support the federal government in some way stepping in. And I don't think when we have a conservative, what we believe is a conservative Supreme Court, that we should wield it as a legal tool against states' rights any more than we would do that when we have a liberal Supreme Court and we see people wielding it against states' rights. So just my, just my thoughts. Um, again, Convey saying, I think it's fair to call it a wash. At the beginning of the year, we were anticipating that the potential redistricting changes gave Republicans the advantage because no one was expecting the Supreme Court to rule as it did in the Alabama case. Now, we talked about the Alabama case on this program earlier. Um, that case simply is a case of redistricting that the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional, that Alabama uh, intentionally diluted the voting rights of minorities in the way that they redistrict after the 2020 census is it but now that they have it's kind of it kind of evens the playing field on the redistricting front other uh, lawsuits that rely on the voting rights act could prompt courts to order the creation of additional democrat leaning districts in texas arkansas and elsewhere but not likely before the next election. Some of the Texas lawsuits will require plaintiffs to show that Latino voters face impediments in electing their favored candidate. 
that could be tougher than in the case of black voters in Alabama, given that Latino voters as a group are more divided in their choice of political party. See, that's a great point. Um, you've got when, when African-American voters tend to vote Democrat um, somewhere in, in, you know, Republicans have been making inroads into the African-American vote in recent elections. But normally, that's a 90%-plus voting block for Democrats. And so when you've got a Latino vote that in Texas is much more divided, maybe 60-40 in favor of Republicans, then it's going to be harder to make the case that the drawing, uh, redrawing district lines by putting Latino voters, a majority of them in a particular district, is necessarily going to help one party or the other, since that that minority tends to split its vote between the two major political parties. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to this. I I just I like this statement that as that that right now we have an even playing field on the redistricting front, and what we were shooting for as Republicans in this lawsuit was to sort of tip the playing field in favor of conservative candidates. And while I want conservative candidates to win, I'm more vested in the idea of state autonomy and the abilities of state courts and legislatures to work this out without federal interference. All right, uh, let's talk about, a little bit about President Trump uh, because, you know, it, it seems to me that I titled this segment, Trump Talks When Silence Would Be Golden. And the reason I said that is because I've heard a lot of people say this. I've heard Ben Shapiro say it. I've heard Matt Walsh say it. I've heard um, other podcasters say this, that you would never want to be President Trump's lawyer. Whether you support Trump or not, being his lawyer is a daunting task because Trump won't stop talking about cases that are pending against him. Uh, he won't stop making public statements. And the first thing that a lawyer will tell you, if there's litigation involved, if you've been indicted in particular with a particular crime, is to shut up. Don't say anything. Don't go out in public. Don't give interviews. Don't talk about the case. Because anything you say, as, as Miranda says, can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, we're not talking about the at the point of arrest here. We're talking about after charges have been filed and conversation is going on by the defendant that could be used by the prosecution to hurt the case of the defense. And, it, you know, quite frankly, uh, President Trump has been guilty of some of this. All right. Um, Monday evening, a recording that was included in the federal indictment for the mishandling of classified documents, obstruction of justice, and lying to the FBI. There's 37 counts against former President Trump. We, we all know this by now. But the, the actual recording that was referenced in the indictment was leaked to CNN. Now imagine that, that CNN got it, and it was leaked to CNN. I'm telling you, you've got people all over the place um, the, the the deep state is real. For those of you who think that the deep state is a is a MAGA or conservative construction of some kind that only exists in in the, in the minds of MAGA supporters and, and conservatives, I, I'm telling you, um, the the deep state is real. There are people in the State Department. There are people in the military. There are people in every part of government. It is so vast that and it is so 
uh, much of a bureaucracy, that these people have been around for a long time, they're progressive, and they tend to release information that is damaging or appears to be damaging to people that they would like to see taken down. And so that's why th this kind of thing is always going to happen. And let me just say this. This is why President Trump should know. He, sh he knows this. He, he makes this case when he speaks at rallies. And yet he continues to give information to that group that can be used publicly to hurt him. Now, the, the recording is, is referenced in the government indictment, like we said, and a transcript has been made public. But as far as we know, this is the first time the actual tape has been made public. The soundbite runs about two minutes and was made while Trump was talking with guests that he invited to his New Jersey home in Bedminster, uh, New Jersey. By the way, if you haven't seen pictures of that place, it's got, it's got like 190 acres or something like that of oceanfront. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, the guest included journalist, a publisher, and also an author who is purportedly working on a book about Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The recording starts with a guest at this event at, at, uh, in Bedmeister at, at President Trump's address uh, or home there. It, it starts out with a guest criticizing General Mark Milley for saying that he was worried President Trump would att attempt to stage a coup. Uh, so Trump responds by saying that Milley was a hypocrite because he had presented President Trump with a plan to attack Iran. You can hear President Trump shuffle through papers before producing a document that he says is highly classified, but he also says that it was given to him by the military. And I'll talk about why that's significant in just a minute. But right now, let's listen to about a minute and 45 seconds of this recording. Well, with Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't that amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. Pages long. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Okay, let me jump in right here and say at this point that Trump's defense that I'm going to play in just a minute when he was talking to Brett Baer last week in an interview, which is why Trump's lawyers don't have a, a real challenge in keeping him from talking to people because he says things that then can come back to hurt him. But in, in any event... Um, you know, Trump said, look, it, it, it wasn't a document. It was just a bunch of papers. It was newspapers, magazines, clippings. And at this point, that's possible. Because if you hear him shuffling papers, he hasn't really referenced anything. He did say something about the, the Defense Department. But he's going to be more specific as the tape goes on. But at this point, his defense that, look, this wasn't a classified document, wasn't even a document. It was just something that uh, was part of the stuff that I'd gone through in one of the boxes. It was a newspaper story. Uh, but as the tape goes on, that become, it becomes clear that that's not what he's talking about. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. 
this is secret information. <laughs> look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time. You know. <laughs> send it, email. You know, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the now, let me jump in here and just say, look, he referenced Anthony Weiner. What's that about? Well, it's about that's a reference to Hillary Clinton, whose emails that um, she had on an unsecure server in her home. Some of those ended up on Anthony Weiner, who was at the time uh, dating Hillary Clinton or married to or in a relationship with. I can't remember which it was, but was connected to um, uh, Hillary Clinton's personal assistant someone that was with her all the time. And so th this is a reference to that. So obviously, at this point, it's beginning to sound like that President Trump is not talking about a magazine article. He's not talking about a newspaper story because he's comparing the document that he's showing to these guests to documents that were found on Anthony Weiner's computer. And what was found on Weiner's computer came from Hillary Clinton's uh, documents, the emails that she was keeping in her home on an unsecure server. All right, let's go back to the tape. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> and he, you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? He's a the papers. Well, this was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to trying to figure about out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's incredible, you. right? No, they, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. These are bad Okay, here, here's the thing with the, the real problem here with the tape. When he starts, when he gets to the point that he's talking about the military gave me this, um, the military is not handing out newspaper clippings. Uh, the military is not handing uh, President Trump magazine articles. Uh, the military is giving him classified information. President Trump even admits on the tape here that this is classified information that he could have declassified before he left the White House, but he, he's admitting that he did not declassify it. It was still considered to be top secret. And when you, when you listen to, to the Brett Baer interview, it really puts this in perspective. And it's why President Trump's lawyers wanted him to not talk to Brett Baer, but he did anyway. Oh, here. Okay. Here's part of the Brett Baer interview. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just saying what the indictment says. Well, they, the recording people, and the look, people in the room who these testified. These people are very dishonest people. They're thugs. They're thugs. If you look at what they've done to other people, what they've done to, and overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court. These are thugs. These the are suggestion was people. that you wanted this as evidence that the military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, had preemptively sent you plans for a possible attack on Iran and that you didn't order that to happen. That's the suggestion. I never ordered it to happen, no. But no. that's why you wanted the document. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a document from Milley. Milley, frankly, was incompetent. The last one I'd want to attack with as my leader would be Milley. Okay, uh, and, and herein lies the problem. This is what President Trump said to Brett Baer 
but it's a direct contradiction to what he said on the tape, because obviously the document that he was referencing, he said, was from Millie, and he was showing it to people in the room that were, I mean, they weren't cleared to look at classified information. The, the, the main problems here is that President Trump's defense has been that this was just a pile of documents that didn't have anything to do with classified information. Well, he said that it was classified information, and he was showing it to people in the room that were not cleared to look at it. Um, he said that it was he had never seen a document from Millie. Well, this is on the tape. He clearly says that this is from Millie, and the reason that he's talking about it is because Millie had accused him of wanting to stage a coup in Iran. And as far as Trump was concerned, look, these, and, and I believe this is why he kept the documents, by the way, is to defend himself. Because when somebody accuses him of doing something wrong, he cannot rest until he brings the proof that he did nothing wrong. And he thinks that having a document that's a classified document from Millie that says that Millie had a plan to invade Iran, that it's Milley who wanted to overthrow Iran and not former President Trump. Trump's saying, it wasn't me. This guy's a hypocrite. And so he's winning a case. And for President Trump, that's extremely important. It's important for him to be right. He has to be right. And even in being right, he's willing to do things that are wrong to prove that he's in the right. And I think that's going to hurt him in the trial. Now, is President Trump being unjustly prosecuted about all this? There's no question about that. Please don't please don't hear me defending the Justice Department decision here to charge him with all of this. Um, I, I, I think that if this was a Democrat, if this was, we, we see that on the other side right now with Hunter Biden and with Joe Biden. We see a Justice Department that is so corrupt that it refuses. It's turning a blind eye, even in the face of whistleblowers, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. It's turning a blind eye to activities by Hunter Biden and potentially by then Vice President Biden. It's turning a blind eye to that while throwing the book at Donald Trump. And this is a Justice Department that is not neutral because you've got an election coming up. Donald Trump is the current front runner in the Republican primary to be the candidate to face Joe Biden. And the Justice Department is throwing the book at him while turning their back on clear evidence that Hunter Biden has done some pretty bad things with his taxes and he's violated gun laws and he's going to get off with a slap on the wrist. Um, no jail time, which no one else in the same situation would benefit from. I mean, there's there, there's there's no way if if this was just a normal citizen that the Justice Department would bend over backwards to make these charges so small and to make the consequences so insignificant. And and yet there's other evidence. David Weiss, who's who's the lead prosecutor, the lead investigator in the IRS on this, has said that the investigation is ongoing while Hunter Biden's lawyers are saying, no, the investigation is closed. I mean, folks, there is so many things here that are not correct <laughs> about this that it actually is pretty stunning. Um, I, I, you know, again, I don't, I'm not in favor of all these charges against President Trump because I believe they're politically motivated. But two things can be true at once. 
they're politically motivated, but the president made some decisions that were foolish that have gotten him into more trouble, that have handed his prosecutors, his persecutors, the people that are constantly after him, that he has handed them a case and strengthened it with some of the things that he's done and said. And I just wish that wasn't the case. Now, it's worth noting that late last night, CBS reported that the transcript of this recording was included in the indictment. But, uh, but here's the thing. None of the 37 uh, uh, counts in the indictment relate specifically to the document that, refer, that Trump refers to on the tape. So, you know, I'm, I'm just making a prediction here. I think Trump lawyers, Trump's lawyers are going to try to get that interview, the transcript of that interview, and the tape excluded so that the jury never hears it. Um, I think there's a 50-50 chance that that'll happen because the argument's going to be that it isn't relevant. You're talking about a document that doesn't appear as part of the prosecution's case, and so why does the jury—this this is uh, prejudicial. The jury is, is going to hear this and be prejudiced about something that's not even included in the indictment. Now, the prosecution's going to come back and say, wait a minute. This is being used to show how careless the president was in the way that he handled classified documents. And it's also going to be used to demonstrate that the president was not being honest with, in an interview here with Brett Baer, that the statements that he's made publicly about it indicate that he was trying to cover up what the document uh, pretends. So I, I think this is, you know, this could go either way in terms of this particular piece of evidence. One of the things to remember, one of the people in the room has since written a book that contains a claim that what he saw uh, was a typed document from Millie. In other words, it's not just the tape. They've got eyewitnesses. There were people that he was talking to and showing the documents to, and they are attesting in testimony um, that, that was taken and presented before the grand jury that this was a classified document that came from Millie, not a magazine article or a newspaper article. Um, now, just how is all this playing into the election? Well, a recent CBS poll showed 76% of Republican voters believe that the prosecution is politically motivated. Trump leads the Republican presidential primary pack right now in an average of 30 percentage points. Now, now get wrap your mind around that. When you look at the primary, I'm not talking about the general election. I'm talking about among Republican voters in the primary. Trump is up by 30. Governor DeSantis is in second place. And everybody else is pretty much in single digits, with Pence being in high single digits and the other candidates being in lower single digits in the polling. So the question is, how will the indictments affect independents and other voters in the general election? We already know how it's affecting the base. I mean, now there may be more indictments coming out of Georgia. There could be another federal indictment related to January 6th. It looks like that the prosecutor's moving forward. Uh, he's granted immunity to some of the substitute electors. I'm not going to call them fake electors because they were substitute electors that were being prepared in the event that there was enough evidence presented that some, that some of the state results would have to be discounted and new electors brought to the table. So, so some of these that had agreed to serve as substitute electors have been given immunity so that they'll talk to the prosecutor 
And the only reason he would do that is because he thinks that they have information that will help him go after President Trump. So just be ready because there's probably going to be another another indictment out of Georgia, and we're going to have to hear all the details of that. And then there's going to be another indictment from the federal level. I, I don't see how that the prosec- federal prosecutor that's been on this, that's already brought these 30, 37 counts, is going to not bring more counts as it relates to January 6th, particularly now that he's granted immunity to some of these um, substitute electors. All right, so, but, but back to the question here. Do we want to win the presidency in 2024? And, as, and when I say we, I'm talking about conservatives. Do we want to be in the, to have the reins of power of the government to make good decisions about religious liberty, about, um, you, you know, all the things, the economy, uh, our involvement in foreign wars, everything that everybody's concerned about? Do we want to have people that we believe have the right philosophy to fix what's wrong with the country, leading the country, or do we want to win an argument about whether or not President Trump is guilty or innocent? And and believe me, that matters to me because I think the president has been unfairly persecuted for so long. It matters to me that he would be exonerated. But you know what matters to me more? That we have a candidate that can win in 2024 and replace President Biden, who's been one of the worst presidents in generations. I mean, we we have got to get away from the left-wing leadership and the incompetency of the Biden administration. And so how are we going to do that? Well, a recent ABC poll says 63% of independents say that the charges against Trump are very serious. And we need to remember and, and I know people are going to scream at me over this, but just bear with me a second, okay? It, whether you believe the election was stolen in 2020 or not, President Trump lost the popular vote. He lost the popular vote in 2020. He lost the popular vote in 2016. He won in both cases. Uh, I mean, well, in 2016, he won the Electoral College. And, it, you know, I realize a lot of people that were probably listening to this program, downloading the podcast— believes that he won in 2020. Um, I don't think it was by direct stealing of the election. I believe that the atmosphere due to COVID was set by progressives who were more aggressive in changing election laws based on COVID to favor Democrats, and that's what gave uh, Biden the edge that he needed to edge Trump out in the swing states. Now, Now, that's what I believe. I know there's a different opinion about that. But, but right now, 63% of independents say the charges are serious. Um, and so the real question, since we know he lost the popular vote in 2016 and 2020, the real question on the table is how is he going to do in the swing states that are going to decide the election? And in several polls, Trump and Biden are tied in the swing states. And if you look at the national polling, Trump leads Biden by about a percentage point. And you've got, if you look on the other side, DeSantis leads Biden by about a percentage point. So let's just call it even on, the, in, on that front all the way around. But in the swing states, you've got Trump and Biden tied in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, the swing states. They're tied. In those same swing states, DeSantis is up 53 to 42%. Now... I'm not, and I want you to understand, I'm not endorsing 
Ron DeSantis for the for, to be the Republican candidate. I'm giving you facts that exist as they are right now. Because if truth and politics and culture mean anything, we've got to look at what's actually happening, and we've got to we need to if we're going to change the country, if we're going to change the leadership of the country, if we're going to get off this track toward destruction and get on a track toward prosperity and thriving, we have got to change the leadership in Washington. And that needs to be our primary focus. Um, and and, and uh, granted, it's early. This polling data is not the final word, but it does indicate that Trump has a problem with independent voters if he makes it out as the primary candidate for Republicans, then there's what what is the plan to win over independent voters who have a real problem with these charges that are being filed and evidently like DeSantis or see him as a more viable candidate in the swing states? That that's a question that we need to answer if our goal is to win in 2024. All right, we don't have time to get into who's lying about David Weiss's ability to bring charges against Hunter Biden. I think everybody knows the answer to that question anyway. I think it's significant that uh, Speaker McCarthy has said that by July 6th, uh, if, if things don't change, if information that has been already revealed is verified that uh, Merrick Garland made um, false statements to Congress, and that David Weiss's ability to bring charges was hampered in any way by the Justice Department, McCarthy has said that he will file impeachment proceedings against Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, we'll talk about the wisdom of that. We'll talk about the evidence for that. I've got a ton of stuff here that we need to get into that we just ran out of time for. So we'll do all that on tomorrow's edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And I hope that you'll join me for that. And by the way, I apologize again that we had a real problem today with the sound at the beginning of the program. Found the problem. It's, it, it's, it had to do with an internal, just one little button on the program that sends the sound and the video up the line, up the chain. And I have no idea how it got altered because I, I don't even go into that section. But Anyway, I'm thankful we got that worked out. If you want to hear the whole program, download the podcast today. It'll be available in about an hour from anywhere you can get a podcast. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning.